0: Welcome back to University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Paul McDivitt, Communication Specialist here at U of M Extension. Today on the podcast, we're talking about potassium. We have three members of Extension's Nutrient Management team. Can you each give us a quick introduction?
1: This is Daniel Kaiser. I'm a Nutrient Management Specialist with uh, U of M with the Department of Soil, Water and Climate and University of Minnesota Extension. One of the key areas of focus I've been doing over the last few years has been on potassium management related to revisions of the fertilizer guidelines.
2: This is Jeff Vetch and I'm a nutrient management researcher here at the Southern Research Research and Outreach Center in Wasika. I'm generally a nitrogen guy, but since Dan's been here, we've been working together on potassium on several different projects across the state and me focusing on the Southern half of the state.
3: Hi everyone I'm Leanna Leverich and I'm a PhD candidate in the department of soil water and climate and I work with Dan on uh, potassium studies particularly working on um, optimizing those potassium recommendations.
0: Great Uh, starting off can you each give us a quick update on the research you've been working on related to potassium management?
2: Yeah Paul Um, so back in 2012 with funding from the Minnesota Corn Research and Promotion Council I started three sites where we did some long-term studies and we kind of designed it after the Elps or the phosphorus project where we we created larger plots that were fixed and developed a range and soil test with the idea of coming back into those plots at a later date and putting uh, different rates of P or of K on so that we could look at kind of the correlation calibration side and it was it was complementing some of the work that Dan and I had been doing or Dan had been doing on farmers fields where we were just doing side-by-side comparisons looking at kind of the critical value or where did we see response starting we picked three sites one at Wasika, and that was a site that we had been mining uh, potassium out of for several years we hadn't applied K there in that site we had a site at Rochester on a silt loam or a lust soil which was different than the parent material at Wasika, and then we picked one site at Becker. Of course, the coarse textured soils are very different. It's been interesting because we've identified the differences, especially coming from the coarse textured soil and I'll probably let Dan ex- or expand on that a little bit. And then in uh, 2015 or 16 AFREC funded that project and we continued with the correlation side looking at different rates. And then the last couple of years, we've been looking at com- comparisons of band versus broadcast.
3: So a little bit about my research and what I'm working on with Dan is looking at the different clay mineralogy types across the state. Um, As we'll get into a little bit more, um, the basic or underlying mineralogy in fields tends to really affect how potassium reacts and how um, how it's available and how it kind of flows in each soil. Um, So in addition to looking at mineralogy, We're also doing some studies looking at CEC and pH and how do we consider those chemical properties um, for optimizing potassium recommendations. Uh, And then the last piece of our work is looking at weathering. And as we um, see different cycles, freeze-thaw cycles in soils, does that um, affect how potassium is being released? Uh, So that's kind of the major areas that we're looking at to try and nail down potassium recommendations for different areas of the state uh, based on those physical and chemical properties.
1: So as Jeff said I mean we've had I've had studies here in Minnesota I think dating back to around 2010 with potassium the first um, studies we were looking at were side by side yes no strips um, in farmer fields where we essentially had none versus a high rate which was either 150 or 250 units K2O, and that idea of that was, as Jeff said, was to look at the critical level, or we're looking at essentially the point at which in fields for corn and soybean, do we not see a response to K, a soil test, we do not see a response to K beyond that, and a couple other things I was working at that point in time, we were starting to look at the moist K test, because it came out of Iowa, that's where I did uh, my, my master's, my PhD, and that was the group I was working in that was a big thing that we we're looking at we we're looking at some different soil test options so it's kind of where I started. That and then I had a, a secondary study where we looked at actually we it was over 10 years it started in 2009 and went to um, I believe 2018 uh, where we we're looking at um, timing of potassium in a corn soybean rotation, so we had blocks within fields of both corn and beans either all the K applied ahead of the corn or all ahead of the beans or a split where two thirds was applied ahead of the corn or a third ahead of the beans. So that's kind of where I started. Um, You know, kind of following that, then working with Jeff, we were working with a number of things, um, as as Jeff mentioned with looking at um, kind of that sufficiency versus build approach that was that of those blocks, similar to the long-term phosphorus trials and, One thing I started to see in some of our trials were some yield reductions, and uh, particularly in the soybean year. So then I started looking at uh, some of the data that was out there looking at chloride. And my latest work really has been looking at, um, obviously stuff that Leanna was talking about, but then also looking at um, different sources of potassium and then looking at management options uh, to try to limit some of the issues that we've been seeing with with chloride. And I'm gonna talk about, I think this a little bit later, I don't wanna hit this all right now, but um, you know we're seeing just some small yield reductions in beans. I mean, they have a lot of times weren't significantly different if you looked at the with and without, but um, one, maybe one and a half bushels and they're consistently there. And that was kind of one of the things that um, through funding through the Minnesota Soybean Research Promotion Council I was able to start looking at more closely and looking at the contribution of chloride to some of those yield reductions and looking at timing of application and within the rotation to try to manage some of that. and. So that's been the big thing because the package and what I've really been trying to do is fine tune our guidelines, Um, looking at providing some better guidelines that are more soil specific, because that's one thing that you see about Minnesota is that we have a wide diversity in soils across the state and management. um, it's, It's looking at a lot of our data. It's been interesting that, you know, there's some situations where we thought we didn't need K where we needed it. And there's some situations where we thought we did and we didn't. So we're trying to really hone in on that a little bit more uh, moving forward and looking at soil-specific factors to get a better handle on what's going on.
0: What key factors impact potassium availability in soils?
3: So potassium is mainly mediated, um, its availability is mediated by um what's in this, uh, the mineral fraction of the soil. Um, so apart from fertilizer, uh, our potassium balance in the soil is kind of derived from what we have there, mineralogy-wise. Um, and different types of clay directly I- impact this. Um, we'll talk a little bit about um, three major types, kaolinite, mica, and smectite. Um, and this is something that we're looking to refine in our work, but Basically, kaolinite doesn't have a huge uh, effect. It, it, um, it's not really interacting all that much, apart from k-binding on the outside of it. Micas, uh, they can kind of create this space where we have fixed potassium there. Uh, so the, there's two layers of clay, and the potassium can get caught up in those layers. And then smectite also has two layers, but it allows for the potassium to kind of move in and out of that. And so, as we work towards mapping soil pota- or mapping our clay mineralogy, we can kind of keep uh, track of those three different types of clay. So, mineral matters when we talk about potassium availability. And to go right along with that is CEC. CEC um, is influenced by those mineral types and when we think about CEC, we can also think about, you know, your dominant type of soil, whether you have sandy soils or clay dominated soils. Um, So where you have sandy soils, you might have a lower CEC, um, which may mean that you have a lower ability to hold on to K. Uh, So those those are kind of our major areas, CEC, the clay type, and then uh, also pH. So when you have, uh, changes in pH, you can also influence the different binding sites that are available. So we call that a pH dependent charge and different pH levels can also affect um, when potassium might be available.
1: So you can kind of uh, visualize clay kind of as a series of plates. So if you had a stacked bunch of stacked dinner plates on top of each other um, in the soil and um, depending on the clay species, um, when those clays hydrate We see the spaces between those those individual clay particles expand particularly with smectites and what that does if you look at those plates is that there's pockets They aren't necessarily flat there's individual pockets inside of those that the size are about perfect for a potassium a hydrated potassium ion to fit in it so that's when we we talk about fixation what happens as those are hydrated and those layers are apart you'll have potassium that'll move in and out of those layers, and as they dry, they can collapse. And with smectites, that's when we get to fixation. And fixation isn't necessarily indicative of that potassium is gone. Um, It's just uh, temporarily made unavailable until those clay species will hydrate again, and um, that potassium can be exchanged um, without it. Um, In Minnesota, we tend to have our soils are what we call mixed. Um, They contain smectites, which is that hydrating clay. It also contains illite, um, which is a non-expanding clay. It has lower cation exchange capacity and it tends to have potassium in between the, the clay layer, those layers that are held tightly. That's an actual, it's a weatherable source of potassium. And you know, where I see a lot of illite in the state are soils in the Southeast. So the silt loam soils, um, and those are soils that we don't always see a strong Yield response to from potassium, which could be explained potentially by some of that um, that illite or that mica weathering over time. So that's been kind of the the important thing. Looking at this is when we start looking at clay species, is trying to get a handle on how this might be affecting our our potassium availability. So that's a lot of what Leanna really trying to do, and with the sands since they don't have a lot of clay, the organic matter provides the most of the cation exchange capacity. And that's what Leanna was talking about as the pH dependent charge. So that was one of the things that I wanted to further look at uh, is, is see, um, because you know in some of the stuff that Jeff, um, what we've been seeing with some of our responses, particularly some of that, um, that build and sufficiency work at Becker is that we didn't always see a strong response to potassium saw very low K soil tests, but seeing a very low rate of potassium being more than sufficient for a given crop. And that was kind of the the surprising thing. And um, we started looking at, well, maybe we need to be looking at a different set of recommendations based on what soils we have.
0: Currently, Minnesota suggests banding K is more efficient than broadcast application of K. What are your thoughts on the band versus broadcast debate?
2: Yeah, so that data probably goes back to, to the John Lamb, uh, George Ream days, and, and also our neighbors to the south. Dan was uh, mentioned he worked with uh, Antonio Malerino's group, and they published some papers back in the late 90s looking at band versus broadcast applications. And, and we generally, not all the time, but showed a consistent advantage for band applications of potassium in or near the row or below the row. And it works really well in systems like strip till or no till, if um, they could be placed in a starter band or they could be placed in a deep band. And the effectiveness, uh, I think, comes from just the fact that we think about how K is taken up more as long term, kind of like nitrogen as, as biomass accumulates in the corn crop. And that's where that advantage comes from. So the study that we initiated uh, back in 2019, we took a couple of our sites that we had the long-term studies at, the Waseca and the Rochester site, and we had uh, a wide range in soil tests K in these medium-sized plots. So we split them, and we did half with band and half with broadcast, and 2020 was the first growing season of doing that. And we saw some some mixed results. What we found at, at Rochester is we got a significant yield advantage to band over broadcast across a range of soil test Ks and across a couple of different rates of application. At, at Waseca, we had a small trend towards a positive, but it was not statistically significant. We're gonna do this study again in 2021 and hopefully in 2022 to verify these recommendations. And interestingly enough, our current recommendations do not have a uh, any change in uh, band versus broadcast or adjustments for, for soybeans. It's only for corn. And
1: this is a, a big debate. I know I, my former advisor down in Iowa. I know he always gives me grief because um, you know the equipment manufacturers really love our recommendations here in Minnesota because of the uh, the band efficiency and. There's been a lot of questions on that um, because a lot of it hasn't really been able to be duplicated. I mean, I think a lot of the work, um, you know, Jeff mentioned, um, you know, doctors George Ream and um, John Lamb. I think a lot of the the band recommendations we have actually come from work that George did in Nebraska before he started here in Minnesota. So, you know, replicating it has really been the kind of the key in, in trying to figure out whether or not it's. There's some actual truth to some of this. Um, we don't see a wide range in growers banding. I mean, I know there's been pockets of growers or, you know, based around certain areas that have more consistent with banding. I think it's going to be more common in situations like strip till. And then, um, well, I mean, historically, ridge till, I think, was the main thing. And that was, I think, the big thing that some of that Mallorino data, they were looking at ridge till versus uh, chisel plow tillage or, um, or no till to look at differences between the, those systems in response to banded versus broadcast fertilizer. So that's one of the things I've struggled with being here is whether or not we can justify having those guidelines. Uh, there's a couple things though about banding that you need to remember that when it comes to efficiency that really the, the greatest efficiency always with is with very low soil test levels. So if you look at our, our rate recommendations where they change our greatest change in those recommendations is going to be for the very low and low testing class and the reason for that is it's essentially the the ability of the soil. To fix tie up or just render some of that potassium unavailable that you're applying for the crop you're applying it to. And when you start getting towards the medium and high testing classes that efficiency tends to go away. So that's one of the things to think about if you're banding is that um, if you are reducing the rates, you have to be somewhat careful, uh, particularly with uh, situations with um, if you're looking at uh, soil tests changing over time. That um, we do tend to see. I mean, the the tendency, particularly with soybean in the rotation, for the soil tests to drop just because soybean removes a fair amount of potassium. So that's one of the things to watch out for. And if you are banding, I mean, obviously there's some some benefits. And uh, Jeff, I mean, I looking at some of the historical Minnesota data. I've kind of looked at some of George's data, but um, generally uh, what we've seen is um, you know greater benefit when it comes to banding potassium for reduced till systems and a lot of that thought behind that was just how potassium is taken up in the soil it takes moisture and as the soils dry if you have a if you have most of your potassium in that upper surface that um, the crop can have a a difficult time to take up potassium Um, the corn crop in general uh, the stuff we've measured have been close to 200 200 plus Pounds per acre uptake of K2O, uh, so the plant does take up a substantial amount. It just doesn't remove a lot of it. And that's one of the things to remember that corn um, is. If you look at corn versus soybean, soybean crop is going to remove more K in the grain versus corn. So you know, typically where we've seen instances where soil tests decline, and have been situations where uh, soybean have been grown more heavily in the rotation. So that's uh, you know one of the things I see a lot right now with growers putting more emphasis on. Applications to beans, and that's kind of one of the things that we've been looking at um, more closely, just because we know that um, beans put a higher demand on it. But um, I'm not anticipating any changes, uh, Jeff. the The study we're doing, um, uh, it's just going to be corn next or this uh, upcoming year, correct? Correct. So we're not going to be looking at soybean at all in terms of that that band application.
2: Correct. S- one of the things that I'd add to what you said, Dan, is I think you hit it a couple of good points and. One is when we think about no-till, strip-till systems is we're recycling all this K. As Dan said, the the amount of K taken off in the grain in corn is not tremendous. There is a significantly more taken off in the soybean seed, but we're recycling a lot of K through the biomass. Now in a corn silage system, that's a different story. We're gonna take most of that away. But in no-till, when we recycle all that K through the biomass, then it leaches back out into the surface soil and it's going to just probably stay in the top inch or two because it's an immobile nutrient. So if we're not mixing that soil with tillage, we're creating a lot of stratification. And that's, I think, where the advantage of the K banding comes in in these reduced till systems, which we may not see that advantage in a more conventional or conservation till system where we're taking a chisel plow or a field cultivator out through there regularly. The other point that you mentioned that, that bring up, and Leanna might be interested in weighing in on this is thinking of these low and very low soil test levels and how the mineralogy would react or interact with that in a band situation. So as a, I, my first thought is this could be a bigger issue in South Central Minnesota where our clay mineralogy is more like to, more likely to fix or tie up K than it would be in Southeast Minnesota where we would be less, the clay mineralogy be less likely to tie, tie up K. So if we rented a piece of ground, a farm or field that we'd never farmed before, and we found out it had really, really low soil test K, and we were going to band apply that may interact with the kind of clay mineralogy that it has and how effective that that band might be. Now, whether we can prove this in our study, Dan, I don't think we will be able to, but it's something to think about.
1: Yeah, and some of the results you had, Jeff, I mean, looking at both the sites you had at Rochester, that's a, a silt loam, so that'd be kind of more what I would say would be a higher illite content versus uh, Wasika. that's uh, clay loam, loam soil, that would be more dominated probably by smectites. I mean, the, the results you were seeing, um, you were seeing benefit of banding at both locations, were you not?
2: Well, primarily at significantly at, at Rochester with a, with a trend towards a benefit at, at Wasika. but Dan, Dan, you were there. The spring and saw um, the amazing growth differences we had at Waseca and the severity of the K deficiency in the plants early on. So it's really surprising that there wasn't a bigger yield difference.
1: And that's one of the things too, I saw this year uh, quite a bit. Um, we had some areas that were relatively dry early on. I mean, it was amazing how much more K deficiency I saw this year than I've seen in some years past, particularly for soils that I would kind of call marginal. Um, uh, we had some sites, uh, one of Leanna's project was at Rosemont and it was just a clear, you know, stair step in terms of increasing in height across the different rates of K. And you could see on um, the, the checks were really strong, um, potassium deficiency, the firing on the edges of the leaves and the lower leaves was there within those particular sites. Um, what's interesting is we had two locations that, um, you know, a lot of our work's been on farm where we've been using um, commercial grade equipment. I had two locations though that were hand applied and those both of the, the sites responded, made um, a site closer to LeSueur. Um, that site, um, not as large of a yield increase, but uh, the yield increase was to about a similar rate. It was around 80 to I think 90 pounds of K2O. Uh, that site tested, I think closer to 160, 170 part per million where the Rosemont site was closer to 100 to 120 on that um but um, the source didn't show the deficiencies but there was a small yield increase so that's kind of the thing to weigh on this and that's one of the, the kind of the issues with um, potassium as well as phosphorus is the economics becomes a little trickier because uh, this well this year we had a decent um, response to the rates we applied we don't always get that and that's one of the things with nitrogen, the advantage we have, we can put an economic model to it, make it a lot easier to, to figure out economically optimal rates when with potassium, it becomes more of a problem. So that's where we're really trying to track down with historical data and with current data, try to fill in some gaps with some of this newer research to see, um, you know, where we can f- at least put a, a probability of a response to the individual soil test classifications and hopefully... Split things out, and I know Leanna's done a little bit of work um, looking at some of the initial results from that. Um, presented some of that data in the fall of um, two thousand and twenty, and I don't know Leanna, kind of what you found for some of the sites. It did look like a few some things were segregating a little bit among some of the sites for for potentially the the optimal or the the critical level at, of potassium for the the individual sites based on some of the chemistry.
0: Yeah,
3: to follow up there, Dan. Yeah, there is. I think. There, we are going to be able to see a little bit of a difference here in response. And maybe some of that is driven by mineralogy. Uh, More to come on that, hopefully, in the future here, though.
0: (laughs) So there have been uh, some questions over the winter related to potash application on soybean. What are some key takeaways from your research and should farmers consider alternative forms of potassium fertilizer?
1: Well, I put out an article through Minnesota Crop News. I think it was in January of, of 2021 uh, talking about some of the data we collected in uh, 2020 where we put on a very high rate of chloride. And what I was really trying to do is trying to induce a problem to try to be able to separate out with, with um, whether or not it was indeed the chloride or the, the potassium fraction of potash. So it contains about equal con- quantities of both. I mean, if we think of potash fertilizer, um, we think of it as OO60 or 60% K2O, even though the fertilizer doesn't contain any K2O in it at all. It's just the way we sell fertilizer on that. And if you look at K versus chloride, it's roughly 50-50 of the two. So you can put a significant amount of chloride on the field with um, potassium. So I put that article out and I didn't realize how much legs that thing would have in terms of, um, you know, how, much, how many questions I would get with it. And there is some concern um, looking at the data. Um, you know, some of the sites, I think, Jeff, uh, one of the studies we had in that um, yes no strips that was down by Grand Meadow was the first time I'd really started to see some of these small yield reductions. And I think that actually site actually came back significant where we put on zero versus 200 units K2O where it was just a small one bushel yield reduction at that given site and no positive response to K for soybeans. So, you know, I started seeing it back then. Um, we saw it in some drier years in the Western part of Minnesota more clearly where I could see linear yield decreases to increasing rates of potash beyond roughly around hundred pounds of OO60 per acre. Uh, so that's really what kind of necessitated it. So, you know, kind of key takeaways out of some of this current work. One is if you need it, you need it. And that's one of the things that I, I don't want to put it out there that there's a lot of concern where you can't apply posh at all to soybeans. Um, if it's low, the, the the soil test says that you need to apply some, the data still shows that it's economical to apply it. It's really the, the key takeaway from a lot of this work is if it doesn't need to be applied, if you're looking at a removal-based system, that really what I'm stressing is to not split the application up. Um, if you're going to apply a two-year removal, it's better off doing that ahead of the, the previous crop, um, because You look at uh, potassium sales in this state, it's 98% of our sales are potash or OO60. And that's the most common source. There isn't really another alternative source out there that's cheap. I mean, if you look at potassium sulfate, it's not widely available. Uh, Sulpomag has a lower concentration of K, so it doesn't necessarily make itself as a good source. It's a better source, I think, of magnesium or sulfur. And then, um, you know, we also tested a product called polyhalite, which was 14% K2O, which again, that's more of a sulfur source because it was 23% sulfur. So we're a little limited in what we can do. So I'm not saying it can't be applied. I just think we need to start looking at where it's being applied in the rotation. And I've been seeing more and more growers trying to push yields apply every year. And with potassium, I'm just not so sure that's a good idea. Um, If you're going to do it, I would say keep your rates to no more than 100 pounds of O60. Um, it's one of the studies we still need to do. I need to look at fall spring application different rates, and just see what that overall tolerance is. Um, but um, based on some of the long term data, you could really see the 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 yield was flat up to about 60 units K2O or 100 pounds of O60, and that's really where the yield started to decline So Really don't wanna cause a panic here because the thing is this issue has been happening since soybeans have been grown in the state and potash is being applied. So it isn't new. This isn't anything that just started happening. It's just, um, you know, with some of the dry years we've had, we've been able to notice it more on some of the research. And that's what I've been really trying to put into place research where we can define that overall risk potential. So I think it's gonna be kind of a wait and see. Minnesota Crop News is kind of where we've been posting a lot of this. I think I'm gonna be posting sometime Late spring, um, maybe early summer, a a follow up to some of that data. And um, we'll just kind of talk a little bit more about what we've been finding from some of the long term trials, because again, they've been very small yield reductions, but they're still there and it's still a yield reduction. So it's still something to probably consider and and maybe look at changing some of the uh, practices a little bit to fit so we don't have that great of a risk.
2: Dan, I was going to throw something out there that maybe you've talked about before when you present this information, and and I've missed it or forgot it, is are there any other crops that people grow in Minnesota that would be sensitive to chloride?
1: So I got some questions on edible beans. Um, I don't know um, because we haven't done a lot of edible bean research. Um, I know sugar beet can have some issues with quality, particularly with um, higher application rates, Um, so you got to be careful with that because the Ex- excess potassium can be picked up and it can impact quality. Uh, the only other data I've seen has been with corn. Um, NDsu Dave Franz and uh, their recommendations are suggesting no more than 200 pounds of potash applied ahead of corn because they're seeing actually what we call a quadratic response, where the the yield will increase to a point and it'll it won't plateau and stay flat. It'll start to decline at that particular point. And I have not seen that. In many of our trials, Um, I have seen some yield reductions in corn at one location, this at Becker in 2011. Um, And that was just an incremental yield decrease for all the rates of K we applied. I've never been able to replicate that though in corn. So, um, you know, the two I'd be more concerned about, beans number is number one, uh, potentially sugar beet, and that's more on the potassium side. just kind of watch the rates. There's really no reason. It doesn't seem like they respond as much, and particularly in some of our heavier soils that are higher in K. So those are the ones I'd be, I'd be worried about right now. The only other one that does tend to come up, and that's mostly a K issue, are forages. Uh, we know that's one thing that uh, potassium is taken up in excess quantity, that um, excess K uptake in forages can be an issue, particularly for dry cows. So it's just one of the things to watch out. Um, if you're looking at um, application of high rates to forages, you may want to split that up because it's one thing we see more commonly is if plants, if it has K available to it, it will take it up no matter whether it needs it. And we see almost a linear increase in potassium uptake with increasing rates applied even without an increase in yield. So the forage, um, particularly with corn, we see a substantial amount of K that it has to to take up. So just be careful with that. Um, But chloride, I mean, looking at it, I think the main one I'm worried about with chloride is beans. Um, the rest of the stuff would be more probably of a K issue. Um, just, just watching it with some of the other crops in, in terms of how they accumulate potassium.
0: Any last words from the group on potassium management?
2: I think there's just one thing I'd mention that, you know, K can in corn, uh, be an important nutrient for plant health. We see it sometimes, uh, helping out and stay green, sh- uh, stock strength, shank strength, and that can be advantageous for growers that farm a lot of acres, and they may not get to that last field to combine to harvest, uh, you know, until late November, early December, and they want that crop to still stand. And we certainly see that that's not a that's a, a place where potassium can provide some other benefits that aren't necessarily yield oriented or yield direct or d- directed just towards yield.
1: Yeah, that's one of the other things too that um, I would say. Just keeping. Up to date in terms of what's going on with the guidelines. Um, That's one of the things with Leanna's project that I'm interested in seeing, particularly in the sands. This availability issue. Because one thing I really would kind of like to know is, um, you know, are all sands the same? Uh, We know that some, looking at some of our data, as we've modified pH, we've seen that a change in CEC, our cation exchange capacity, with some sands there's one of the samples that inexplicably, I don't know, we probably need to test to see if it is truly a sandy soil if it has something else in it that was relatively flat and that's kind of the thing These our recommendations would suggest a lot of potassium being applied to sandy soils. The issue with sandy soils though having a lower cation exchange capacity is they won't hold it so leaching is an issue so that's kind of one of the things that I've started looking at maybe dialing back our recommendations on some of our sandy soils, because if it's leaching out of the profile, it really doesn't make any sense to apply high rates, particularly if our data doesn't support it. So I would just say keeping, you know, looking at the data, um, we'll, st- we'll keep updating things through Minnesota Crop News. So it's, it's I think one thing to pay attention to as we go along here. And we're getting to a point at which we we'll, should have most of the data collected for the mapping for the illite smectite here within the next year, I'm, I'm kind of hoping, and then we'll, we'll start getting some of the data put together and looking at critical levels and those type of things after that. So just keep in touch with what's going on through Minnesota Crop News.
0: All right, that about does it for the podcast this week. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, AFRAC, for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening.